the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. Aldous Tyler for Friday, May the 7th, 2021. The skies are clearing, the trees are green, the weather is warmer, and that makes so many people in this town so much happier. Unfortunately, it does have one other effect, and that is that the people who don't have homes, the homeless, uh, who have been camping in our uh, local parks here throughout the winter suddenly have a much harder time because now people want to enjoy the parks, right? The people who have houses and pay the taxes here feel that they're entitled to enjoy their parks without having to see those homeless people. Oh my gosh, we want to bring our kids down there so they can play soccer and we want to take them to the water pad and we don't want them to have to deal with these homeless people all the time. So the homeless encampments are being forced out of Madison parks. Now the weather's getting better. And, um, the solutions that are being offered are uh, sketchy, shall we say. After all, um, there are some funds being provided by the Biden administration to house homeless temporarily in hotel rooms in the area. Um, but that's temporary. And it's not really a solution. Now, we here in Madison had another solution that we were working on. In fact, we were uh, looking at having um, a proposal to purchase a vacant big box store on Zaire Road, right near East Town Mall. Um, the store had formerly been a Savers, and before that had been what's called a Gander Mountain Outdoor uh, Specialty Store. Um, if you're not familiar, think Bass Pro Shops or that kind of thing. Um, and like I said, it had been abandoned by uh, by Gander Mountain and then uh, turned over into a resale shop for savers for quite some time. And that didn't stay put either. Um, 
But the idea was that we were going to go ahead and purchase this. The mayor put through, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi agreed that bo- that uh, the, between his budget and Dane County, they were going to put $3 million uh, to buy and renovate the property. And it went uh, before the Madison Common Council this weekend who said, nah, we don't want that. Now, the idea was backed by many of the organizations that have long provided services to the homeless over the years here in the area. Executive Director Carla uh, Fins of Porchlight, uh, the nonprofit that's had to work from temporary shelter to temporary shelter seemingly forever, w- was excited that it would at least at last give the homeless shelter a home of its own. Um, and, and the mayor noted that a permanent shelter at the Zaire Road location would not only be a place for homeless men to sleep, it has a space to offer other services around the clock, a place where people experiencing homelessness could stay connected beyond just finding a bed. Now, I mean, the mayor even noted that some homeless people have jobs at night and need to have a place to sleep during the day. But... The proposal faced stiff opposition. Nearby businesses were opposed to the location. They feared that homeless men would hang around the mall. Um, Representative, uh, State Representative Samba Balde, a former alder for the district I'm sitting in here, the 17th district, was vehemently opposed, insisting the shelter would negatively impact an area that is already experiencing crime. (sighs) I'm going to have to have a talk with him. In any case, the point is, he wasn't the only one. The new alder for this district was also opposed and was not happy about how um, how close it was to another a day shelter nearby. Now, let's be honest. No one apparently wants a homeless shelter near their location. That's been precisely the problem in finding a permanent home through the years. That's what made this location on Zaire Road so very attractive. It was separated from residential neighborhoods. Um, You know, over there in the mall section, it was significantly better, less intrusive than most. It was on a bus line. It was near a planned bus rapid transit route. It has enough room to double the capacity of the current temporary shelter. And it's not like it can't happen. It's not like this is an impossible goal. Um, As an example, uh, Asheville, North Carolina, has uh, a budget that um, includes creating what's called a low barrier um, homeless shelter. Now, similarly, they had homeless camps in their parks and they're dismantling those because again, it's nice weather. We don't want to see those people. Um, and so they're housing them in hotels nearby for the moment, but they have been willing and able to approve, um, this, uh, this place, this, uh, low barrier shelter is what it's called. Now, what a low barrier shelter is, is one that accepts couples, people with pets. They don't mandate sobriety tests. Now, uh, critics of low barrier shelters, of course, are like, oh, but, you know, if if you're letting people into an enclosed space who are addicted to drugs or alcohol, you're just promoting more drug use. No, you idiot. The drugs are doing that. 
the alcohol does that. You're just making sure these people don't die of exposure in the meantime. It's really not that hard to understand. Um, I mean, the alternative is to turn people away, landing them back on the streets, maybe in jail, which is unfortunately what we're facing here in Madison, because right now the funds that are taking the homeless out of their, uh, out of their encampments in the parks and putting them in the uh, hotels, that, that those funds aren't going to be there forever. That's a temporary thing from the, uh, the federal uh, bills for, uh, to help uh, the cities that have passed through Congress. That's temporary stuff. So Asheville, at least, is trying to do something uh, more permanent. Now, in Melbourne, Florida, um, you have something else entirely going on where um, in uh, Melbourne, they noted that very little affordable housing had been built during the past decade, which was exacerbating the homeless problem. So in March, a groundbreaking ceremony took place for St. Stephen's Way, a gated complex of 40 three-bedroom apartments for homeless families whose children attend school in Brevard. So here's what they did. They said, hey, you know what? If you are a family here in uh, Brevard County um, and you need a home and you've got a kid in the school, then here we've got we're, we're going to make 40 new three-bedroom apartments. Three-bedroom apartments are awesome for small families. Well, even slightly larger families. And they can really make a big difference. And here's where this is a big deal. This isn't just shelter. These are apartments. You know, like, hey, what if the solution to homeless is to actually house people? As another example, um, as another example there in South Brevard County, construction is also underway um, at Heritage Park at Crane Creek with a four-story affordable housing complex um, where 80 units will target supportive housing needs for the homeless, including case management. So right there, we were talking about 80 units of permanent housing. And that, that, that will they'll have case managers on site and available to help. Now, here's where that makes a difference. A permanent address is so, so crucial to actually finding a job. You got to be able to put one down on the application or you can't get work. So, you know, here in Madison, we can't even get a, a permanent shelter put in. In Asheville, they're putting in a permanent low barrier shelter, which which will just basically tell you, hey, look, if you need help, come and get the shelter. In Brevard County, Florida, they're putting in actual housing for the homeless. And why is this a big deal? Why are we concerned about such things? Well, because, frankly, we're concerned about human beings. We want them to have homes. And we've discovered that if you actually house the homeless, then they're not homeless. In fact, um, Finland has essentially ended homelessness. Um, this is how they do it there, okay? I mean, in 2008, you could see tent villages and huts standing between trees in the parks of Helsinki in Finland. Homeless people had built makeshift homes in the middle of Finland's capital city, and they were exposed, you know, to harsh weather conditions. 
And since the uh, 80s, by the way, the Finnish governments have been trying to reduce homelessness. They put their short-term shelters out there, and long-term homeless people were still left out, of course. There were too many emergency uh, shelters, and many affected people did not manage to get out of homelessness. They, they couldn't find jobs without that housing address I was just talking about. And um, without a job, you can't, of course, find a flat or an apartment of your own. It's a vicious circle. And then, of course, there was the problems applying for social benefits. And so they found themselves trapped um, or excluded, I should say, pretty much. So in 2008, the Finnish government introduced the policy for a homeless, the new policy for a homeless there in Finland. It's called Housing First. Since then, the number of people affected has fallen sharply. Now, just so you know, this is a successful program. This is the only European Union country, Finland is, where the number of homeless people is steadily declining, going down. Now, just to give you an idea, there's a, an NGO, a non-governmental organization called the Y Foundation that provides housing for people in need. There, they take care of the construction themselves, they or they buy flats on the private housing market and renovate existing flats. The apartments have one to two rooms in this case. In addition to that, former emergency shelters have been converted into apartments in order to offer long-term actual housing. Uh Jua Kakinen of the uh, Y Foundation, director of the Y Foundation, said it was clear to everyone that the old system wasn't working. We needed radical change. Now, homeless people simply turn into tenants with a home using basically they're giving a ten they're given a tenancy agreement. And there you go. Now, yeah, they, they have to pay rent and operating costs, but social workers who have offices in these residential buildings help with financial issues, such as applications for social benefits, so things can get paid. Juha Kakinen, uh, being head of the Y Foundation, um, that NGO is mentioning, receives discounted loans uh, from the um, nation of Finland to buy housing. Additionally, social workers caring for the homeless and future tenants are paid by the state. Uh, the lottery in Finland just so you know, supports the NGO when it buys apartments on the private housing market. Um, and then the Y Foundation also receives regular loans from banks, which later uses the rental income to repay the loans. Uh, Juha uh, said, we had to get rid of the night shelters and short-term hostels we still had um, in, in operation in 2008. They had a very long history in Finland. Everyone could see they were not getting people out of homelessness. So we decided to reverse the assumptions. The policy applied in Finland, housing first, reverses conventional homeless aid. More commonly, those affected by homelessness are expected to look for a job and free themselves from their psychological problems or addictions. And only then do they get help in finding accommodation. That's usually how it works, right? It's like, well, you know, you, you should, you should get a job and then, you know, you should, you should see a therapist about those problems, you know, those addictions or whatnot. Oh, Hey, look, you're free of addictions. You got a job. Okay. We can get you a house. That doesn't work. That never works. Now, housing first, on the other hand, reverses that. Homeless people get a flat without any preconditions. 
Social workers help them with applications for social benefits and are available for counseling in general. In, in such a new secure situation, it's so much easier for those affected to find a job and take care of their physical and mental health. Now, I know what you're saying, Aldous. Aren't these people just going to ruin their lives again? They, they, they've got problems. Hey, look, the results speak for themselves. Roughly 80%, four out of five homeless people are able to keep their flat for a long, long time with this housing first idea and lead a, a stable life. Um, it's just amazing when you think about it. And what they found out too because you're going to go, oh, hey, isn't that expensive? Hang on. Creating housing for people costs money. Yeah. In the past 10 years, 270 million euros were spent on the construction, purchase, and renovation of housing as part of this Housing First program. However, as Juha Kakanen points out, this is far less than the cost of homelessness itself. Because when people are in emergency situations, emergencies are more frequent. Assaults, injuries, breakdowns, the police, healthcare and justice systems are more often called to step in. And this costs money. In comparison, Housing First is cheaper than accepting homelessness. Now, Finland spends about 15,000 euros less per year per homeless person than it ever did before. Now, we're not saying this is some kind of miracle cure, but that's a high success rate. Four out of five people keeping their flats. It makes housing first an effective uh, program in the long run. And hey, so you might even go, but hey, wait a minute. 20% is the failure rate then. But, you know, what happens to them? Well, it's, it's not really as big a failure as you might think. Because in 20% of the cases, people move out because they prefer to stay with friends or relatives. Sometimes... Maybe it'd be, it's because they don't manage to pay the rent. But even in that case, they're not dropped from the program. They can apply again for an apartment and are supported again if they wish. There's never a guarantee of success. Um, it's one of these things, though, that if you want homelessness to stop being a problem, house the homeless I just really wish this simple, simple concept could take off here in America, just like it has in Finland, and is starting to, down in Florida, of all places. So I guess that's America, but boy, it's still a pretty rare idea here. How's the homeless? Do it. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Sleep. Brothers got a date to keep you can't hang around. Our house in the middle of our street. 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 Our house in the middle of our street.
happening and it's usually quite loud Our mum, she's so house proud Nothing ever slows her down and a mess is not allowed Gets up late for work Mother has to iron his shirt Then she sends the kids to school Sees them off with a small kiss She's the one they're going to miss in lots of ways TMI with Aldous Tyler. You know, I understand that conservatives are often just sick to death of hearing about complaints about how things aren't fair. Well, there is one sure way to cure having to hear about how unfair things are, and that is, let's see about making them more fair. Maybe you'll hear less about how unfair things are, if things are more, you know, equally distributed. Now, I understand that this isn't necessarily your priority in life, but here's the deal. When it comes to the judicial system, even the most fair-minded people, the ones who want to appoint justices and judges of diverse backgrounds, are going to be having a problem if those people simply aren't in the qualified pool of candidates to choose from. Now, one of the things that's currently holding that back is a new trend. There's an expectation that law students will have to complete multiple clerkships before making it to the Supreme Court's clerkship. And that's a major hurdle for women and those that take on law school debt to try to, you know, get further in their careers. Now, again, this is going to sound like a first world problem, but believe you me, it affects all of us. And I'll bring that around in just a moment. 
Now, let's say you have a law school student who um, is at a top 10 law school, all right? And let's say she happens to be married and wants to have a family and plans to work in constitutional law. The problem is she's butting up against this new trend for those competing to join the ranks of constitutional lawyers, judges, and scholars, which is the assumption that people graduating from law school must complete multiple lower-level clerkships before hoping to clerk at the Supreme Court. Now, clerking at the Supreme Court and getting there is a process that already favors the wealthy and well-connected. But this new hurdle is going to make it even harder for women who want to have children and those that take on substantial law school debt to make it into the upper echelons of the legal world. You gotta understand, a three-year law degree at one of the nation's top law schools costs you more than $100,000 a year, more than the median home, you know, in almost any market. Now, for the best, brightest, and most dedicated and most ambitious law students, there's traditionally been another step after law school. So you've taken on that $300,000 plus dollars of debt, and then you want to get into the Supreme Court's clerkship program. See, every year, each Supreme Court justice hires four law clerks to help with his or her work. And retired justices can also hire a law clerk that they share with a current justice. The process to become a clerk to the Supreme Court justice varies by chamber, but the reward for those who make it there is enormous. The standard hiring bonus for an associate coming from the Supreme Court is now $400,000 at top law firms, you know, plus the $190,000 annual salary average. So in other words, if you can land a job clerking at the Supreme Court, when you leave that position for a top firm somewhere, you are going to get a hiring bonus of $400,000 because of the fact you're coming from the Supreme Court's clerkship program. And of course, your salary is going to average around $190,000 a year as well. So all of a sudden, that $300,000 plus debt you took on doesn't seem like such a big deal if you can do that. Former Supreme Court clerks, by the way, are at the top of the list for judgeships later in life. Such a clerkship is all but required to teach at a top law school or to work in places like the Office of Solicitor General at the Department of Justice. It's no coincidence that the last four justices to be confirmed to the Supreme Court all had previously clerked at the court themselves. And of the last 12 solicitors general of the United States, only three didn't clerk at the Supreme Court. So 75%, 75% of the uh, last 12 solicitors general of the United States clerked at the Supreme Court. Now, here's where a problem that uh, affects women and poor uh, people uh, disproportionately becomes an issue for everybody. You see, representation is important if we want actual justice to come from the courts. If you want rulings from judges, and if you want um, rulings from the Supreme Court, if you want ruling, if you want uh, efforts from the Solicitor General to all be um, mindful of how those things will impact women, 
poor people, etc., it helps if more people from backgrounds of being a woman or having been poor at one point in their life or that kind of thing, it helps if they're able to move up into these positions so we have a fair system. But if you're fair-minded and want to appoint people like this, if they're just not there, that's a problem. Now, here's how this works. Until the 1970s, most Supreme Court clerks came straight from law school, right? Up and uh, up, up through the, the end of the 60s. If you wanted a clerk in the Supreme Court, well, you know, of course, graduate law school. Duh. And then apply. No problem. Now, in the 1970s, it became more standard for graduates to apply to a Supreme Court clerkship after clerking for a lower court judge first. So starting around 1970, it's like, all right, look, you want to get in the Supreme Court clerkship. You need to at least have some experience with a lower court uh, clerking there. Okay, fine. Since the mid-90s, every Supreme Court clerk already has worked for another judge for at least a year. Okay. That's, you know, again, I get that you want somebody experienced in clerking before they go to the Supreme Court to do that. Okay. Makes some sense. So that's since the mid nineties. But here's this new trend that's bubbling up at the Supreme Court. The expectation of not just one, but multiple lower court clerkships before getting to the Supreme Court clerkship. Using data from multiple sources, uh, including uh, David Latt's reporting on the Above the Law Legal News website that he founded, uh, as well as Wikipedia's record keeping and other research, um, we are able to document this radical trend that's received scant attention, even within the legal community. So let me give you a background. From 1996 to 2016, 16% of Supreme Court clerks had clerked for more than one judge before making it to the Supreme Court clerkship. So in other words, just make sure you're with me here. From the mid-90s until just five years ago, less than one in five Supreme Court clerks had had multiple clerkships before making it to the Supreme Court clerkship. Now, in the past seven years, that number has skyrocketed to 61%. So from not even one in five to more than three in five now have had multiple clerkships before they make it to the Supreme Court clerkship. In fact, just as a matter of raw numbers, there have been more, pardon me, more multi-year clerks since 2016 than the previous 20 years combined. Now, this data doesn't even take into account the Bristow Fellowship, which is a year-long position within the U.S. Solicitor General's office, long seen as another post-clerkship path to getting a SCOTUS clerkship. Of this year's five Bristow Fellows, every single one had clerked for at least two years in the lower courts. Now, you know, the few hundred young lawyers who compete for the 40 or so SCOTUS clerkships have already jumped through so many hoops, so What's one or two more years? Well, here's the deal. If the credential opens the doors for future opportunities like it does, changing the game can have long-term consequences for who practices law at the highest levels and who's on the short list for future judgeships. Basically, who's in the pool for judgeships when people are looking to appoint them? I mean, it's Nearly impossible to read the benefits, just as an example, of a year-long clerkship with any kind of maternity leave. So, if multiple clerkships are now a, pretty much a requirement to clerk at the Supreme Court, 
and get that $400,000 bonus afterwards. Women who take circuit court clerkships must balance a roughly 1 in 20 shot at a a Supreme Court clerkship against the biological reality that they have a limited number of years to have a family. The women who are um, asking whether it's worth the sacrifice, whether a shot at the Supreme Court is worth spending another year or two away from friends and family, they're considering whether or not they should delay the practice of law and put off starting a family, honestly. Which, again, not to be you know, blunt about it, but there are only so many fertile years in a woman's life. After four years of college, three years of law school, at least two years of multiple lower court clerkships, and many district court clerkships require two years, by the way, um, maybe even an additional year as a Bristow Fellow, and then one year as a Supreme Court clerk, many women are well into their 30s by the time they even start at a law firm through that path. If you want to become an equity partner, that can be at least eight or nine more years at most firms. And maternity leave, to the extent that isn't frowned upon to begin with, is often subtracted from your time working toward partner. Some law firms count extra clerkship years toward a lawyer's partner track or increase starting salary after multiple clerkships, but many don't. Having one kid is tough on that timeline. Having more than one? Forget it. And then there's the economic concern. What about people who went to law school to help support their families or who took on $300,000 in debt to attend the Harvards or Yales in the first place because they knew that would be their best chance of getting to where they want to go? I mean, it varies a bit by location, but clerks are typically paid around $70,000 a year, and many in deep debt might be reluctant to spend another year on that salary before heading off to a lucrative job at a firm. Or what about those that are first in the family to go to college, let alone law school, and don't have someone to guide them through the evolving passageways of the prestige labyrinth? So, it should be no surprise that white men still dominate the ranks of the Supreme Court clerks. As of 2017, 85% of all the justices' law clerks were white, and a third were female. 2018 was the first year that women made up half the clerks when Justice Brett Kavanaugh hired an all-female group of law clerks, but by 2019, men were back to 68%. And the overwhelming majority are white, as we mentioned, 85% in 2017. Uh, Most Bristol Fellows this year, too, by the way, are men, as they were last year and the year before. The type of person most likely to uh, to be able to forego a law firm salary and clerk for three to five years after law school is going to be someone with both the time and the money to pursue that path. Justices are incentivizing this system and, in some cases, explicitly encouraging it. And the results of doubling down on this type of clerk will reverberate throughout the legal profession. The list of candidates for judgeships or the types of lawyers practicing before the Supreme Court will be increasingly drawn from law students who are already privileged in any number of ways. And and for what? There's no doubt that Supreme Court clerks can have enormous influence over the most important legal issues of our time. After all, the justices read only a handful of the thousands of petitions that ask the court to hear a specific case. It's the law clerks who make vital recommendations of what is wheat and what is chaff. Perhaps we should want them to have more experience, or at least another year on the planet, and yet 
of the three law clerks who presumably helped Chief Justice Earl Warren draft Brown v. Board of Education in 1953-54, two of them had graduated from law school that summer. In 2003, three of Justice Anity Kennedy's clerks had just one appellate clerkship, that's one year of clerkship, when he wrote the majority opinion in Lawrence v. Texas, striking down a Texas law that criminalized sodomy. By 2015, three of his clerks had two clerkships when he wrote for the majority in Ober, uh, Obergefell versus Hodges, establishing same-sex marriage throughout the country. Taking a close look at the individual justices over the course of this trend, it's hard to argue that the change in clerkship experience has fundamentally or even perceptibly altered their jurisprudence. Among the justices, this trend doesn't fall along ideological or gender lines. Before 2016, only one in five of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's clerks had spent more than one year as a clerk before working for her. But during her last four years on the bench, nearly 90% of her clerks had multiple clerkships. Chief Justice John Roberts as well hired a majority of his clerks, 68%, from multiple clerkships. On the other hand, just 20% of Justice Neil Gorsuch's clerks had multiple years clerking before showing up in his chambers during the same time. It's not obvious why the double or sometimes triple pre-Supreme Court clerkship has become so popular, but let's go over some theories here. First, when a number of the highest-ranked law schools got rid of grades, that's Harvard, Yale, Stanford, they all dropped letter grades by 2009, judges and justices may have started to look for other metrics of success. The problem with this theory is that well, nearly all the hiring at the appellate level is done during law school, so the additional clerkship might provide more training, but it's not as if the second judge hires only after the first judge has seen the clerk's work. Uh, second, and perhaps more convincingly, there used to be a voluntary clerkship hiring plan that encouraged judges to wait to hire until after the second year of law school. The plan, however, offered very little incentive for judges competing for top-tier clerks to follow it. And as a result, the plan fell apart in around 2014. The resulting rush to hire the best clerks earlier and earlier in the first year of law school may well have contributed to those top students, that's the ones most likely to compete for Supreme Court clerkships, in receiving multiple offers and accepting them. There has, however, been a new plan which is nearly identical to the old plan, in place for the last couple years, encouraging judges to hire after year two. But it does not appear to be as universally followed as the pre-2014 plan and doesn't seem to be making any dent in the double clerkship trend at the upper ends of the appellate ranks either. Uh, Fifth Circuit Judge Greg Costa, a former clerk to Chief Justice William Rehnquist, bemoaned this trend three years ago among the lower courts, writing that it was not good for the clerks, the judges, or the profession of law. Uh, Greg Costa said, the reduction in the number of people clerking that results from multiple clerkships also likely contributes to the lack of demographic diversity among clerks. Second clerkships, in his view, likely further concentrate these jobs among graduates from elite schools, reduce the variety of legal perspectives clerk bring to chambers, and are much more of a financial hit, meaning candidates with financial concerns may be out of contention.
He then admonished judges to think carefully before contributing to the problem, noting that giving as many new lawyers as possible that mentoring and training is perhaps more important than ever, and that hiring someone who has already clerked is at odds with that goal and means there will be fewer practicing lawyers who have had the valuable experience of clerking. Unfortunately, no one seems to have listened to this advice. Now, let me just boil it down real quick for you. When you come out of law school and you go and clerk for a judge, at that point, you're holding a position that um, you know will allow you the experience of clerking for a justice. That's good stuff. But other people want that position as well so they can have that experience. And it's kind of important experience, legally speaking, especially if you want to move up uh, at all in your profession. So if you, as a single person, keep getting clerkships here and there and elsewhere, one one after the other after the other, that's less clerkships going around for people to have that experience. That's less people and less diversity of people who are getting that experience and able to move up the ranks. Now, here's the thing. When it all comes right down here, and what's difficult to answer is what happens to the legal profession when there are even fewer individuals filling these federal clerkships, and when a process that already advantaged young white men from wealthy families has even the best qualified women, you know, making calls to ask whether or not it's worth it. I mean, not every female lawyer, of course, wants to have children, and not every female lawyer wants to clerk at the Supreme Court, but it becomes less of an option for women and certainly less of an option if you're not already pretty well off and able to handle the financial burdens of trying to do it. If you want equal justice in this country, you need to try to have as close to equal representation amongst those deciding what is just. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Lots of more. Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. So the census is out. Instead of roughly 309 million people in America, there's now over 330 million people in America. That's the change from 2010's figure to 2020's. Now, U.S. House of Representative seats are things that, once upon a time, expanded with the population. Up until uh, just a little over 100 years ago, which is when it got enshrined that we were going to have 435 seats in Congress. Those seats become far more powerful because they represent um, the will of more people. And if you buy that representative to do what you want, you're essentially subjugating that many more people's will to whatever your designs are with your money. Now, it doesn't have to be like this. A reapportionment in 1921 in the traditional fashion, where you kept getting more members of the House added in because you had more people to represent, would have increased the size of the House to 483 seats. But many members would have lost their seats because of population shifting, and the House chamber simply didn't have seats, literal chairs for 483 members. By 1929, no reapportionment had been made since 1911, and there was a vast representational inequity measured by the average district size. Uh, by 1929, some states had districts twice as large as others by population, and thanks that was thanks, of course, to population growth and demographic shift. Now, in 1929, with Republican control of both houses of Congress and the presidency, um, Congress passed the Reapportionment Act of 1929, which capped the size of the House at 435. You know, that, that was the, what, legally what was done and established a permanent method for apportioning the constant 435 seats. And this cap remained unchanged since then, including right now. There was, okay, pardon me, a temporary increase to 437 members when, in 1959, Alaska and Hawaii were admitted to the Union, but it went back down to 435 afterwards. Now, three states, Wyoming, Vermont, and North Dakota, have populations smaller than the average for a single House district. Now, although none of these states have fewer people than the least populous congressional districts as of the 2010 census, that would be Rhode Island's two districts, but as of May 2016, there was about one representative for every 723, sorry, every 720,000 people in the country. One rep. Now, just to give you ideas about what's going on here, as of 1920, sorry, let's just do 1933, uh, the first um, reapportionment after it was absolutely put in law that 435 was the maximum number of congressional representatives. 280,000 people per representative at the time. Now, almost three times that many uh, people are represented per representative. This is a problem. Um, when things like that happen, you wind up having um, representatives supposedly representing and servicing so many people that they're, they're really not going to be paying that much attention to each individual one. It's going to be very difficult for, for um, constituents to effectively advocate on issues that they want their representative to do something about. 
It's going to be less likely district offices can quickly respond to queries and meet requests for help. It also means that campaigns for competitive House seats, which, you know, are going to need to reach many more voters, are going to be more expensive. A shift that, you know, as history indicates, is likely to increase the influence of billionaire campaign donors and corporate political action committees. Because if you just want a simple representative seat in Congress, you're going to have to reach 700,000 plus people in order to run effectively in a single house district. So the fact is there's nothing in the constitution that requires that the house stay this number of seats. It doesn't have to. Um, it's, it's not like we passed a constitutional amendment for it or anything like that. Um, and, you know, when it comes right down to it, expansion is the way to make sure that we are being represented much more fairly, much more evenly, and that we all have some sort of voice in things. As it stands, even just increasing seven seats in Congress would allow states that are slated to lose representatives, like the state of New York and Illinois, allow them to keep them, while at the same time allowing states that are slated to gain seats to increase their delegations. That would save a lot of wrangling over, um, you know, the way that the Congress is apportioned at this time. But it would be an arbitrary choice made for purposes of convenience rather than democracy. What we really need is a recognition that the current House is not representing us by many, many measures. It needs to grow. Along with advocacy for voting rights, elimination of the Electoral College and an end to gerrymandering. And yeah, let's put D.C. in as a state while we're at it. Uh, for And also uh, Puerto Rico, because let's do it. Um Heck, full representation rights for U.S. territories that are not states. Let's do that, too. But we should definitely be seeking an expansion of the House that reflects the USA's continual growth and increasing diversity. Now, how much do we want to do that? Well, I mean, if we we're going to keep up with population growth uh, for the last hundred years or so, the House would need to dramatically increase in size to well over a thousand seats. That... <sighs> I mean, realistically, might be a little difficult, at least initially. But I mean, can we at least see what we can do to uh, have it be more representative? Um, as with the U.S. Senate and the Electoral College, these smallest states are disproportionately empowered by the current apportionment system. Every state gets one representative, no matter how small its population. Because of that, Wyoming, with a population of just barely over 500,000 people, gets one representative in the House. Now, at the same time, New York, you know, the state with a population over 20 million, gets 26 representatives, which means each represents, on average, almost 800,000 constituents. So a representative, that one representative from Wyoming represents, you know, almost 300,000 fewer voters and has the same influence in Congress as one representative from Manhattan or Albany or Utica or whatever. And so what if we simply said that Wyoming, as the smallest state, would provide the baseline for apportionment. Basically, if we call that, uh, and this notion is known as the Wyoming rule, it works out pretty well. Basically, the Wyoming rule takes the population of the 50 states and divides it by the population of the smallest state, which then would serve as the number of congressional districts to be apportioned. 
The seats are then apportioned to the 50 states. This method prioritizes fairness between the districts. The population of the smallest state will also be the average population of congressional districts overall. It's not a perfect fix, okay? But there are many smart proposals for how to expand the House, and some are more you know, precise than others, mathematically speaking, but the Wyoming rule has the intuitive value of matching the size of districts to that of the smallest state. It's helpful that way. It, and it has the advantage of being more equitable than what we got now, like by far. I mean, under this rule, you're still looking at your average representative having almost twice as many people as they had 100 years ago. But that's way better than three times, which is what we're looking at right now. And it will continue to increase with population instead of continuing to cram people under representatives in order to have any kind of representation in Congress. After all, one of the absolute founding concepts behind this nation was no taxation without representation. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, you are one third of a person compared to somebody who was a citizen of the United States in 1920. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and I get people telling me, hey, Aldous, wow, you you certainly seem to have a a clear view of, of how you see the world. But how do you do that with the flood of information coming all your way? Well, this is how I do it. The first step is to close your eyes. Clear your mind of the scads of stuff being thrown at you. It's too much information. Find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. Then, when you're ready, you can just breathe deep, let all that go, and you'll be ready to see the world for how it is. All you'll have to do is simply... Oh!